one judge in one federal courtroom in Texas is hearing a huge number of patent cases. Today on the podcast, we hear from that judge and ask him why, in just a couple of years, he's become the go-to patent jurist in the entire United States. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. You know, it always feels good to be liked, but is it good for a judge to be so liked by a certain type of plaintiff that they all want to file lawsuits in his court? That's essentially what's happening with Alan Albright, a judge in the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Texas. He was appointed to the bench by President Trump in early 2018 and confirmed by the Senate later that year. Since then, people suing over patent infringement have flocked en masse to his courtroom in Waco. He fielded nearly 800 new patent cases just last year. And it's not just that he gets all of these cases. Albright has also been holding on to them by routinely denying requests to move his cases to a different venue. To find out why, Bloomberg Law reporter Matthew Boltman gave Judge Albright a call and invited him on this podcast. Albright was eager to explain his background, why he's become a patent guru, and why he's keeping all of these cases for himself. Matthew started off the interview by asking Albright how serving as a magistrate judge in the 90s prepared him to be where he is today. In the 90s, when I was a magistrate judge, the district judges weren't big fans of patent cases. And so as the magistrate judge, I often got to work on them. And I actually enjoyed them, which meant I got to work on more of them. And then I left the bench in 99 and, and practiced doing this. I saw you quoted in a local newspaper as saying that when you took the bench, you wanted to turn Waco into a sophisticated venue for patent litigation. Last year, 20% of all patent cases, approximately, were filed in your court. It looks like things are on a similar pace this year. Have you been surprised at how quickly patent cases have gravitated to Waco? Did you envision the patent docket filling up as fast as it has? Uh, No. The short answer is no. When I said what I said, and I meant it, uh, you know, having practiced for 20 years, I love the idea of of um, getting these top cases because the lawyers are so exceptional. The subject matter is very interesting. I perceived myself when I got on the bench really as a safety valve, as it were, as a, as an additional place that where patent cases could be filed. And um, and then one thing I learned uh, after practicing for a long time in the Eastern District. I thought the very best thing about, there are many good things, but one of the very best things about the Eastern District is it, whether you sued there or got sued there, there was a lot of certainty in the process from the time the case was filed through trial. And one of the major goals I instituted immediately uh, when I got on the bench was I set up a committee. It's ad hoc. It now has some number of people, 80 or 90. Anyone can join. Uh, it's open to the public. I encourage people to join. And, what, and I made it as diverse as possible. And by diverse, I mean uh, lawyers at big firms, lawyers at small firms, lawyers that represented primarily plaintiffs, those who represented defendants. And I said, let's come up with the rules uh, for patent cases that is the fairest to both sides. And you know, one side would want X and one side would want Y. But ultimately, we came up with, I think, some pretty good rules for patent cases. And I think I've been told that one of the things that people are most happy about in my court is the relative predictability of what's going to happen if a case is filed here. You know, within reason, in a normal case, 
you're going to have no discovery until the Markman, you know, the Markman's going to take place about eight months after the case is filed. You know you're going to get the claim constructions then. You know that the case will be tried Maso Menos 16 months later, and everything else kind of falls within those parameters. And, uh, and so if you're a, a sophisticated uh, a patent trial lawyer, you know, you've got predictability from the moment you either decide to file the case here or your, your client is sued here. And that was what I was hoping to accomplish. Is there a point where the docket becomes too congested? And by that, I mean, you mentioned predictability and the time to trial. With, is there a point where, where there are simply too many cases? You know, I guess there is the possibility of that point, but you know, I, I, we, we've done a lot of things uh, recognizing that situation. For example, the Fifth Circuit was very gracious to me and I have, an, I have a temporary extra clerk, so I have four clerks. Um, I am now using technical advisors. Uh, I now am using three different technical advisors to help, you know, with my, the Markmans and other things. Um, I'm about to get a second magistrate uh, who will start hopefully no later than April of next year and hopefully will start sooner. Uh, that magistrate will also have two law clerks. Uh, you know, we, we've thrown a lot of manpower at this. I guess that the ultimate gating issue is we'll come down to, and we're, again, doing the best we can to balance it, is, you know, if I have a week where I have trial, it's going to be tough to squeeze in five markmans that week because I'm in trial. And at some point, I can, I could, I know it may slow. My ability to get to Markman's, for example, may may slow down by two weeks or four weeks. So you know, I could see where, it you know, you're going, we're going to lose two weeks to six weeks over the long haul. But I think that's that's manageable. You mentioned the magistrate judge. Um, what do you envision their role will be? Will they handle patent cases? Uh, yes, um, for sure. Uh, the new magistrate will be handling uh, a lot of discovery motions I have. He'll be getting, or she'll be getting, uh, one or the other, a percentage of um, the motions to transfer. Uh, they'll be handling Markman hearings. Uh, I would love for uh, the public to have enough faith in the person I pick to want them to try cases as well. Uh, I have I have no ego in that regard. Uh, I'm No lawyers will offend me by saying, Judge, we'd rather have your magistrate handle this trial. I'll be okay. <laughs> it won't hurt my feelings. Now, I know there are some concerns about patent cases being concentrated in a, in a handful of courts. And on account of some of the case assignment rules in the Western District, plaintiffs, in effect, being able to guarantee themselves a spot in your court. How do you respond to those types of concerns? Yeah, I, I, I got to tell you, I don't understand them. And I don't want to sound, you know, naive or, or um, silly, but, you know, if you look in 2011, I think it was, Congress realized that uh, patent cases sometimes can, it'll help to have judges who have a little more sophistication handling patent cases. So they came up with the patent pilot program. And the p purpose of the patent pilot program, for example, in the Northern District of Texas, was to say, hey, if a case gets filed in Dallas, maybe in, instead of having 12 judges who get two cases a year, maybe we'll be better off with two judges or three judges who handle all the cases 
and, and can handle them more efficiently by doing that. And so I, I think the idea of uh, the number of cases in the places where they are, uh, I, you know, it being, uh, there being an issue with it, you know, I think the judges who have the majority of the cases are handling them very efficiently and know how to handle them. And number two, I've said this a lot recently, the water's warm. Any judge that wakes up tomorrow in America and thinks, man, I'd really like to get some of those patent cases. They can, they can do anything. They can use anything I want, <laughs> anything I'm doing. They are welcome to borrow or steal with no copyright problem. Uh, if, they, if, if any other judge, I don't know that you'll be able to find one. I, I challenge you to find any judge in America who's sitting there saying, if I only had more patent cases. But if anyone else wants... They can use anything that I use uh, in my patent cases, and they're welcome to call me and ask me about anything. Or the, I'm sure they can call the judges in Delaware and the judges in the Eastern District and the judges in the Northern District of California. We, we're all happy to help anyone who wants to join the fraternity. The Federal Circuit it has, in, in recent months, weighed in on transfer issues with a handful of mandamus orders. You've said in the past that the Federal Circuit grades your papers. I'm curious what your takeaway from this recent dialogue has been. Oh, uh, you know, I, here's, the, here's the deal. Um, I'm very, very, very respectful of the, of the Federal Circuit. And in every single uh, motion, everything I do, but, you know, on this particular issue of motion transfer, I am absolutely trying to do my best to divine what the Federal Circuit thinks I should be doing. And what the law is, of course, the law is part of the problem is a little bit of the problem is that, you know, it's, it's Fifth Circuit law that we're applying uh, and the Federal Circuit is interpreting Fifth Circuit law. And so, you know, we're we're dealing with it. And then the Federal Circuit has to tell me whether I did it correctly. But if you look at, at, at sort of what I've done over the three years, um, for example, uh, the Federal Circuit has made it clear that they don't want me to do, be um, handling substantive issues in the case until I've gotten the motions to transfer resolved. And so there's now a standing order in place that essentially asks or requires lawyers to let me know if we're getting too close to a substantive um, markman or something else that, that where there's still something pending like a motion to dismiss or motion to transfer. I mean, the, the burden is on the, the lawyers to make sure I don't miss it, but I am actively doing everything I can to make sure I am tr complying with what I think the Federal Circuit wants me to be doing and to, uh, and to um, faithfully uh, uh, decide these issues the way I, I think they're teaching me to do it. Shifting topics a little bit, courts responded in various ways to the coronavirus pandemic, including switching to remote hearings. With respect to patent trials, you also did things like eliminate bench conferences and, and provide public audio feeds for trial. Are there aspects of these pandemic era measures that you would like to keep going forward? Actually, there. I, I think I always try to be careful here because I'm always worried I'm going to say something and the headline will be Albright thought COVID was good, and so let me make clear: say I don't think COVID's good. 
But there, for, for federal judges, for federal courts, uh, if you had told us a year ago, January, to even consider having Zoom hearings, 99% of federal judges would have not even given it a second thought. And now, for, for me at least, for sure, Zoom hearings are here to stay. Uh, I think it costs clients way less money. It makes it so that clients can be available at all my hearings. Uh, it enables, uh, for example, if you have a Markman hearing this Friday, you can know what's going to happen because you're, you can watch two tomorrow because they're publicly available. And I think the best aspect of that, of the Zoom hearings, is that my clerks and I strongly encourage clients and law firms to let younger people handle different aspects of the hearings. And, you know, if you have a, an associate, young associate in New York City, it's a lot easier to let them do one discrete function in a pretrial hearing or a Markman than it would be to, to port that person to Waco, you know, for a, for a, a short stint. So all of those things are great. Uh, also allows me to be extremely flexible with when I have hearings. Like I said, it, you know, I'll, I'll go in a day and, and have to schedule three, four, five, six hearings, and it allows me to do a lot more, I think. Uh, in terms of trials, um, I think the idea, uh, it, it turned out uh, the best thing, it, it, and I, it, not like I was omniscient or some you know, super bright guy, um, but I thought it would be really good to have, uh, let the public have access through Zoom audio. Um, and so that turned out to be the smartest thing I did in the sense that no one had to come into the courtroom and they still, the public still had access to trials. You know, we were a little worried uh, that for some of the trials we had, there might be a lot of people who felt like they needed a courtroom. And it's a federal courthouse. It's public. They ought to be able to come in and see public trials. Uh, and so that, I wound up having days where I had no one in the audience because we had people listening by Zoom. It also allowed them to hear the voir dire. It allowed them to uh, hear the, the uh, charge conference. And then it also allowed um, fewer people in the courtroom because if you were an, a lawyer or agent, for example, an expert of one of the parties, you could actually do Zoom video because I could control who had access to that. And so, for example, if one side had three or four experts, instead of them having to sit through the entire trial in the courtroom, they could sit in their hotel room and still have watched the entire trial. So I think there were a lot of things that we learned from doing that. Um, allowing, uh, I allowed then, I probably will continue to allow in the future, witnesses to attend remotely if there's some reason they need to do that. And I'm beginning to think with COVID, it may last a while where, you know, someone says, uh, look, my expert is in Canada. And, you know, again, a year and a half ago, I was said, well, they have planes in Canada. And now it may be that a Canadian expert has to appear by Zoom because they either can't leave Canada and come here or they can't go back home if they come here. So I think there, I think there are an awful lot of things for us to take advantage of, yes. That was Alan Albright, a judge in the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Texas, speaking with Bloomberg Law's Matthew Boltman. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. We had special help today from Greg Henderson. Our editor is Jessica Coombs, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Reach out to us on Twitter if you have anything on your mind. We use the handle at BLaw. That's B as in, I'm going to the beach this weekend. 
and I'm looking forward to it. Thanks everyone for listening and we will see you next week. Those nine justices in Washington, they can be pretty hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court. The filings, the arguments, the opinions, and much, much more. So check in on Fridays with Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon at the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.